Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity. Tony, always fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Let's just think about things. We consolidate, and you want to add risk as we consolidate. Why is that, Tony? Well, John, I think ultimately there's two phrases that we've all come to know, and that's don't fight the Fed and don't fight the tape. The Fed is extraordinary here. You have a Fed that has literally looked into a television camera and said, we're just printing the money. And don't worry about that. Now is not the time to worry about that. And we're going to issue unlimited support for the credit markets. And the phrase that really, I think, has, has hurt so many portfolio managers and myself, frankly, over time is it's not it's different this time. That's the phrase we all love to talk about. I think the real phrase that really hurts performance is this will end badly. Because, of course, it's going to add badly. You cannot fix exponential debt with infinity debt. However, it, in the current framework, the Fed is very driven to, to obtain their, two, um, their only two mandates, full employment, which clearly, even with a gain, we're not going to get on, uh, over, any, over the near term, and stable core inflation, which they want to be at 2%. So recently, last week at 1%, they're a long way off. So this Fed is going to be sending the money in. And I I don't want to fight that. I mean, Tony, this is really, really important because you've been very clear that you're modeling a caution in a bear market even off of a recession. Well, we got an MBER recession, but you're putting a big asterisk next to it, right? Well, there's I, so we downgraded the market on um, on January 20th because we just we wanted to take some risk off the table. It had just gotten way too excessive. Then, of course, I didn't expect a 34 percent, but you know that. I was glad we took some risk down. We added risk when we came out of what, what actually when Fed Chair Powell Tom said into the camera on 60 minutes, CBS is 60 minutes that we're just printing the money. I never thought you and I have been doing this a long time. Did you ever think that the Fed would actually not even use great terms like QE or buying trade? They're just saying they literally were printing the money. So at that point, you know that they're going to try to um, increase economic activity, not stop till they do. Tony, don't fight the Fed is certainly one theme that we've had this year. The other theme is don't fight the big tech rally, but that's getting threatened by the Facebook advertising boycott, mm-hmm. which is really raising questions in general about the advertising budgets of big companies. How much could that influence the rally going forward? Well, I think that that could create a little di- this is so once we upgrade the market you got this incredible runoff of that trading range so on june 5th we thought that the market would go into a period of consolidation because these stocks have seen extraordinary moves right they, it's just even the economically sensitive stocks you had a two-week rally in the banks of 30 percent and it was time to take a little bit of that that is an extraordinary thing that's never happened so it's time to take a little bit it was time to take a little bit of money off the table so actually the market has been consolidating since early June. So if you look at the percentage of stocks above the 10-day, it's dropped uh, S&P components above their 10-day moving average. It's all the way back to only 10%. If you look at the percentage of stocks above their 50-day in the S&P 500, just two and a half weeks ago, 
that reading was over 90%. It was 97%. It's now 40, 48%. So you, you've dropped, or 46%. So you, you're already internally consolidating the market. Now it's catching up at the indices because some of those big mega caps, stay-at-home stocks are starting to get hit. Tony, are we redefining what a defensive asset actually is? Is a growth <laughs> stock a software stock with an elevated multiple of 30 times forward earnings? Is that a defensive asset right now? Buddy, I, I, I tell you, Tom, you, me, Lisa, all of us have been doing this a while. The NASDAQ mega cap stocks are considered the defensive stocks, which I just, it, it, that is unique to this cycle. Um, so when you put those stocks, if you're making an offensive bet, you've got to be believing that there's going to be a reopening of economic activity. And again, our, our target is, is a 2021 story. It's not a, you know, in the next 15 minutes, we're off to the races. I think what you want to do is okay. use periods of, of liquidity on the downside to add exposure. Okay, but Tony, where are you putting new money? You got new money, you're putting yeah. it to work. Where are you putting it to work? So we're, we've been thinking if you're going to put money into the market, it's got to be on this economic reopening or an offensive uh, sector allocation, which would be in the uh, beleaguered banks, which got absolutely smoked on Friday on the Fed decision. Um, what was interesting about Friday, though, even though the market was pretty pretty weak, as you know, the industrials and materials actually significantly outperformed the S&P 500. So we're looking to go into those areas, Tom, that benefit from an economic reopening and not a stay at home forever. But again, this is something we're looking at over the next 12 to 18 months, not the 12, next 12 to 18 minutes. John, I'm struck by Tony's comments and, frankly, the comments that we get from a lot of investment managers, this idea that we could have more upside in stocks, even though the economy faces a lot of uncertainty and downside surprise. And again, I'm just struck by this dissonance between uh, stocks not necessarily representing the underlying economy, where the bottom fifth of all earners in America are currently uh, about 30 percent below employment levels seen in February. I'm just wondering how this is going to filter into equities, if ever. Well, Lisa, you've said it a million times. The equity market is not the economy. And Tony, with just five big names making up about a quarter of the S&P 500, yeah. it's something we've just got to accept, isn't it? Some people are really struggling with this still, that the equity market somehow has to be a reflection of where this economy is and where it's going. Well, what, which equity market, though? Um, so, and again, I think that's the most important phrase. Would I, would I chase some of those mega cap stocks that have had such an extraordinary move? I wouldn't have. Uh, for example... Facebook on Friday gave back all the gains that it had in the prior month and change. So what, what you have is elevated risk when you have parabolic moves higher or such focused move higher. I want to I invest in America or, or um, economic activity and a reopening of the economy. I don't want to I don't want to be chasing the stay-at-home work theme forever. Clearly, that has been working, and that has been such a driver of the equity market thus far. But again, if you look at the relative performance of the Russell 1000 growth versus the Russell 1000 value, you're seeing not just an absolute uh, test of what happened in the dot-com era, but even on a 10-week rate of change, you saw a peak and it is now kind of pulling back a little bit. So I, I think the move is uh, to Tom's question is value over growth. And, and it's not played. It's not been the great theme coming off the low. But coming out of a recession, going to Lisa's point, 
coming out of a recession, typically your your outperformers are financials, industrials, materials, and consumer discretionary. Those are the areas, if you believe that the economy is ultimately going to recover, the global economy is ultimately going to recover, those are the sectors that you want to buy into the weakness that we've been expecting and, and could see a little bit more. The two main problems that everybody had for the market was what about the second wave and what about uh, if the Democrats do some kind of sweep? Well, the polling is pulling forward the political side and the expansion yeah. of the COVID-19 cases in the South is clearly telling us what the second wave could look like. So that's this consolidation period. Instead of happening in the fall, it's happening now. And I think that creates the opportunity for investing in those reopening areas over the next few months. Tony Dwyer of Canaccord Genuity. Tony, always fantastic to catch up with you. Appreciate the transparency, the honesty. Joining us from Duke now is Jonathan Quick, and what is so important about Dr. Quick is not only his exceptionally prescient book, The End of Epidemics, but also his commitment over multiple decades to looking at uh, the uh, epidemic turned to pandemic. Dr. Quick, what everyone wants to know is what is your solution for the political chaos that we're in right now? It's not much different than in Albert Camus' The Plague. How do you extricate yourself from the political chaos to end with a better medical outcome? Well, I, I think the first thing is that we need to keep persisting in, in um, getting, the, getting the public, everybody, to, to see the reality in front of us and to do what works. Um, we're, we're sitting here in the U.S. seeing ex- explosive increases uh, with, with at least 30 of the states seeing increases, yet we look around the world and, and we, we see what works. Um, I, I think we've had the worst of, of pandemic communication in the sense that we have uh, our leaders, um, you know, not on a, on, on a common message, and that's, that's part of it. And um, I think right now, uh, we're on base of the Rockefeller Foundation, we're working to build an alliance of, com- of public organizations to get a consistent message out to the public yeah. about the viruses here. And so if the leaders aren't coming together, I think society has to come together. But keep pushing the leaders with, with facing the reality. We've got this pandemic. We know it will be with us for a while. And we know what to do to, right. to, to slow it down. Your work included six years with the World Health Organization. You are a good filter of all the literature that is out there. If we see the case count explode in Florida to Arizona, do you just correlate that that over to a rising death count in the coming weeks? Well, uh, yes. With with, um, uh, the recognition that the, the shift Early in the outbreak, it was really uh, a lot of at-risk um, older people. We weren't protecting the, the most vulnerable. Um, so we're seeing now cases rise, uh, but the death account at the point at the present time is is um, is is holding steady. So um, we will see more deaths. We will see proportionally fewer because more of the cases are younger people who don't 
don't die as often. But yes, indeed, we will see rises in death count as as the um, increase now most in the pop, in the youth gets filters up to the middle age and older. So yeah, I expect we we will see the death count coming back up. Dr. Quick, this distinction is so important, this idea that you're seeing the case count rise exponentially in some areas, but the death count not expected to rise as much and not rising significantly at this point. Could this be interpreted as perhaps these flare-ups not being as dangerous as the initial ones and being just another sign of a reopening economy, young people getting back into the workforce and managing through the virus to get some sort of herd immunity without necessarily a vaccine on the, on the horizon for the next couple of months? Well, I, I mean, honestly, I think that's uh, I think that's wishful thinking in the sense that um, uh, is a bigger outbreak, even if proportionally more of it is is in the youth, it's still going to uh, claim lives. The virus hasn't changed, and and I think one reality is it's not. Um, saving lives or saving the economy, we, that's a false choice. We can do both. But our biggest failure has been not to really reinforce those basic personal protective behaviors, which we know work. Distancing, face masks, hand washing, avoid uh, large gatherings. Um, I, I think there's an in-between where we, I mean, staying indoors for three months didn't change the virus. It's still just as contagious, and whether you, whether you start with a youth epidemic because they're not following um, enough the, the, these personal protective behaviors, um, it, it will eventually continue um, and, and affect the whole population. So we, we've, we do have to reopen, but we have to, we have to do it in a way which really applies the lessons of what has worked in other countries to plateau at least the virus and, and minimize uh, and reduce the deaths and, and, and all of the knock-on effects. Dr. Quick, uh, how long do you think it'll be until we have a vaccine? Well, I have to say I'm, I'm encouraged by the, the vaccine work that's going on now because we have, uh, we have a, at least uh, nearly uh, 20 vaccines in human trials, and that's exciting. And we've got a couple that are going into uh, the AstraZeneca University of Oxford one and the uh, uh, Moderna one. Bo both of those are going into uh, to the last phase of, of human trials where we really go on a large scale to test the safety and efficacy. Um, so I'm encouraged. Uh, that said, the whole process of scaling up production and all, I, I think we'll start seeing some coming out in, in the spring, as folks hope. But I don't see large-scale vaccine availability that changes things fundamentally um, until, until the uh, you know, latter half of, of 2021, as, as, as folks have been saying since the beginning. I, I think that hasn't changed. Uh, but I do think the speed has been historic, and, um, and the companies are, are really looking at how to maximize production. Dr. Quick of the Rockefeller Foundation. Doctor, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. You've got to come back on soon. This is a really interesting interview because he's a very interesting guy. 
His father basically made modern Miami Beach. Seymour uh, Gelber was the mayor of Miami Beach forever, lived to the lofty age of 99 years old. And his son, Dan, has carried the torch forward, steeped in Florida politics. He's one of the most interesting Democratic voices across the Sun Belt, and he is the, mo the mayor of Miami Beach. Mayor Gelber, uh, thank you so much for joining us. If I went down to the Betsy Hotel this morning, could I have a beverage of my cho choice on that wonderful veranda looking out across Miami Beach? Well, if it were open, you could, because it's a restaurant, not a bar. Bars have been closed in our city uh, since uh, we, we sheltered in place. We were the first city uh, in Florida to do so. So we, we don't have bars right now anywhere, but we do allow restaurants with limited capacity at this point. What is the capacity you need from your state government, including your Republican governor, and what do you need from Washington right now? Well, first of all, from Washington, we need people to start sending out a message that you need to do the things that we're asking people to do. Uh, you know, I always describe, uh, you know, we, mayors in South Florida know about hurricanes. They happen all the time, or at least they seem to, uh, you know, be be coming towards our way generally uh, and during hurricane season. So we all prepare. And there's never any discussion about whose fault it is or whether it's a, what party it is or everybody just does what they need to do. And they tend to help everybody else. They tend to listen uh, to the direction of their political and health management leaders. And they tend to sort of get in line and help people they don't even know. This, uh, for whatever reason, the messaging from Washington has not been help everybody else, help yourself. It's been, don't wear a mask or stand up against this or stand up against that. It's so unhelpful. Right now, the biggest concern we have is getting people to simply do what every health expert tells them they should do, uh, which is to wear a mask, wear a mask when you're near somebody, wear a mask to protect your parents, wear a mask to protect yourself, and they're not complying. And uh, young people are especially not complying. And since my city is in the middle of this, uh, because we get so many guests, so many visitors, so many, uh, you know, hospitality workers all in this little interchange uh, that happens in this little island. We see it in a big way and it has to we need direction and we need leadership. Mayor, as you look to leadership, there is a question about some of the hard decisions that you have to make as the leader of your city. And as a parent, I know the conversation very much among my friends is a question about when summer camps can get back up and running, when we can get schools back up and running. I know that summer camps have been open in your region. At what point will you shut them down and keep schools closed come the fall? Well, you know, we have tried very hard to follow very directly the advice of the healthcare professionals. So CDC allows for summer camps if all of these other uh, provisions are taken care of. And I think the Pediatric Association today really wants people to strive to open up schools in some way because they're worried about the impact of not having schools open and the failure to socialize and, and, and all those issues. So we're going to try to, you know, to do what we can within the confines and constraints of a of what the healthcare professionals say. This is a healthcare issue and it should be treated that way. That said, you know, a lot of it is what parents are going to permit. Uh, we opened up uh, virtual and regular summer camps with, with lots of restrictions and we got a good number of people interested, but many obviously didn't. Um, the reason we opened up 
summer camps. And the reason why schools are trying to open up is obviously people can't work if their kids are at home, especially their younger children. And, and so it's part of not just the kids' development, but the economy. So we're trying very hard to navigate uh, but right now, given the spikes that we've, the enormous spikes we've seen in the in the county and in the state, uh, you know, we're not sure what we're going to be doing because if we can't uh, get a handle on this, then obviously the the healthcare concerns will override everything else. <clears throat> It may or not an easy decision. And Tom, I'm really struck, uh, especially in what the mayor was talking about in terms of the economic concerns, people not getting back to work if their kids are not in school and the idea of what could happen if we have children con uh, congregating. They don't social distance. And what happens with respect to all the little vectors of disease who go home to their families, Tom? <laughs> the, yeah, I mean, what's interesting here, Mayor Gil? Well, go ahead, please, go ahead, Mayor Tom. Gilbert, go ahead. No, I was just well, saying no, what, that we, What's you interesting know, here to me? You're up. <laughs> what I was going to say, excuse the delay, uh, Mayor Gelber. What I was going to say is your father basically invented the idea of moving from New York down to Miami Beach. You took advantage of that out of Tufts and all that. How do you do the winter season in Miami Beach this year? How do you convince those northerners to get down there when it gets chilly? Well, the first question is how we're going to tolerate crowds. I mean, my little city, and I'm just a small part of the county, has 4,000 New York addresses. Uh, people, you know, 4,000 units are owned by New Yorkers. So we, we have already a pretty natural influx of either people visiting or people living part of the year here, sometimes six months in a day for tax reasons. Um, but the, the truth of the matter is the, the market is going to determine some things because some people will simply not travel. Uh, so much of our hospitality economy is tethered to planes and boats and these ships that are not going to, you know, the cruise line seem to be moored for quite some time right now. Uh, people are traveling by planes as much as they do. So we're seeing probably a little bit more regional tourism. But I don't know. I mean, a lot of I mean, we're worried, obviously. We have huge events every year. Uh, down here. We just had a Super Bowl. We've got the NCAA championships, obviously Art Basel in December. We have lots of things that yeah. we rely on uh, and that we enjoy. I mean, look, we are a community that is built to not socially distance ourselves. We are a community built for all the other gatherings that we want. Mr. Matt, we've got to leave it there. Appreciate your time this morning. Matt Galba there on a situation on Miami Beach and across Florida. Wilding of PIMCO. She does very careful economic work that their portfolio managers bounce off of. Tiffany, what is your call now? I want an update from you on how VE the V is. How's the V-shaped recovery going? Well, I think it's going to look like a V. First, first, thanks for having me. I think it's going to look like a V in the first several months of, of this recovery. Now, what, one thing that I would say is I think it's very important <clears throat> to note that we think we came out of recession in May. Um, and as we came out of that recession, so not, wow. deepest, not only the deepest recession, um, but it's also the shortest recession. So we clearly saw growth in the payroll figures as well as retail sales and things like that in May. So we probably came out of recession in May. 
And I think what's going to happen is this, these next couple of months are going to look very much like a V-shaped recovery as we get this spurt of activity, as people, you know, start to get back to work um, and, and start to reopen the economy. Um, but after that, we think the recovery is going to be much slower. And I think you're, you know, you're starting to see some of the effects of reopening the economy with, um, you know, some of the uh, rising cases within the Sun Belt within the United States of, of the COVID virus. You know, so after that kind of initial spurt of activity, things are going to be much more slow going, we think. Okay. What, you know, a lot of the reports over the weekend, Tiffany, have this down you go, and there's sort of this, you know, nudging up in business activity. We spent a lot of time on the consumer with the pandemic. What does PIMCO observe about business spirit across this nation? Well, it looks like businesses are actually um, a little bit more cautious, I would say. They're getting going a little bit more slowly uh, than the consumer sector. You know, so I mentioned retail sales. You know, clearly, we saw a bounce back in um, a pretty dramatic uh, uh, bounce back in, in, in sort of durable goods types of things. So it looks like consumers are they're still spending uh, the spending data that, that we look at on durable goods actually looks like it might be similar to where it was pre-COVID. So services are down a lot still, but, but consumers are still spending. They're shifting some of their, their spending over. On the other side of that, you know, businesses look a little bit more tentative. Um, the business survey, um, we do think the ISM this week does bounce back to 50, uh, which is, means that the business or the manufacturing sector is mm-hmm. expanding. But keep in mind, it doesn't tell you how much it's expanding, those ISM manufacturing indices. It just tells you that about 50% of firms are so, you know, I think I think they they will be a little bit more slow going. There's still a lot of uncertainty out there. You know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of uncertainty about how, what the virus path will be. You know, I just don't see businesses really investing in in, um, in things that will, you know, projects right. that will, you know, could take five years to get going uh, if they're pretty uncertain about, about how the, you know, how things are going to be. Tiffany, right now, this is the main issue for investors because of the fragility in the reopening process across some states across America right now. Just how instructive will the aggregate data be in the coming weeks and months? How instructive will it be? Um, how instructive will it be, the, the, the economy and, and how it's going? Um, you know, I think, I think No, you just have in to terms kind of the aggregate data, Tiffany, let me, let me clarify and make oh, it super clear for our, for our listeners and viewers <laughs> as well. If the aggregate data continues to show an improvement because of the mechanical reopening of, say, a state like New York, does it mask the fragility in places like Florida, Texas, California, which are struggling with the reopening process? I see what you're saying. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you absolutely have to go from more of a, a kind of national um, a- analysis to a very regional analysis. And that's certainly been the case, you know, with the, um, you know, the hospitalizations and the, the COVID virus new cases itself on a national level, you know, actually looks like the new cases, daily new case counts are coming down. Things are looking great. But if you, if you dissect the data, you know, there, there's a very concerning trend. Um, you know, even after controlling for testing, so we're doing more testing, which is great news, but even after controlling for testing, a lot of these COVID cases, new COVID cases and hospitalizations in some of the southern states are, are doing uh, very poorly. So we're actually watching, um, you know, some of our high-frequency data on credit card sales, for example, to see if our consumers actually reacting uh, to those increases in cases or increased outbreaks in those areas. And you know, we're monitoring this pretty closely. So far, we haven't really seen that big of a drop-off in sales, for example, in those regions. But I think this is going to be more like a light switch, if you will. So people are going to continue, I think, to, to try to get on with their lives until one day you know, things are maybe going to get bad enough 
where, you know, they kind of stop consuming. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that we're waiting for. It's not a linear process, but something that has to be monitored um, on a regional basis at this point. And Tiffany, that's one reason why a lot of people are saying that there could be a series of downside surprises on the economic data front going forward in the next couple of months. At the same time, some, including yourself, seem to believe that there may be an upside surprise when it comes to the policy response, which sort of comes as a surprise to me because it feels as if the market is baking in a re-upping of the enhanced unemployment benefits. What is the market pricing in and what do you see as likely when it comes to fiscal stimulus? Well, I mean, I think what the market's grappling with right now is that we are going to have a fiscal cliff, if you will, um, kind of in, in the neighborhood of July if Congress doesn't do more. So as you mentioned, the unemployment insurance uh, benefits, uh, 60, 600 uh, a week, they will expire. You also have that delay in the April 15th tax deadline that people have to pay their taxes now on July 15th. That sort of expires. You know, the PPP, which is the Paycheck Protection Funding, goes away. There's also a lot going on on the state and local level. If state and locals, because they have to have balanced budgets and because their fiscal year ends is ending in June, they're going to have to start slashing uh, uh, spending, and that means really cutting jobs and services. So there's a really big potential fiscal cliff that we could see in July. I think markets are weighing that with, you know, will, will federal government, federal lawmakers get together and do something? Ultimately, we think that they will, um, you know, because at this point, the economy is still quite fragile. I think the reason why we're seeing this whole V-shaped recovery in the first couple of months is precisely because we've gotten the, the uh, large amount of fiscal stimulus that we've gotten. You know, so those household rebate checks and things like that, they are being spent in the economy. We can see that in the retail sales data. You know, so it would be, I think, very bad for the economy if, the federal, the federal government, uh, you know, sort of pulled back on spending now when the economy is so fragile. So ultimately, we think that it does happen because it, it needs to. And we think we could get another, you know, trillion dollar fiscal stimulus plan, you know, kind of in the neighborhood of July to basically thwart this uh, fiscal cliff that's coming. Tiffany, let's talk about the composition of that plan, where the fiscal effort should be directed. What is the optimal composition of the next fiscal effort in the next 30 days? Well, so I, mean, I think I think you have to be, you know, I think lawmakers should be a little bit careful because what we are starting to see is that this this crisis, like others, will have, you know, kind of what we call lasting scars. You know, so one of those things is, and I kind of alluded to this before, is that consumers are changing their behavior. And we think that they'll probably change, you know, they'll kind of be permanently changed. So some of the things that we're seeing is, is kind of interesting. You know, people are, you know, for the summer, you know, they're buying more camping gear, for example, as opposed to, you know, taking a, you know, a flight or going to a hotel. Uh, they're, they're buying uh, sporting equipment instead of going out and going to the, the, the workout studios that they used to, to go to and things like that. So we think because consumers are sort of buying these durable goods to substitute for what were services, this is going to be a bit more of an ingrained behavioral change because they're investing in these things like RVs or camping equipment. Um, you know, that's kind of on a micro basis, but I think it does really speak to this idea that you're going to have to have shifting economic resources from some industries into other industries. And I think government uh, government stimulus needs to understand that that's going to happen, allow it to happen, uh, you know, and not slow it down, but at the same time sort of pad, pad the economy while that transition is happening. I think the best way to do that is to, to basically focus on, you know, unemployment insurance, for example, maybe carefully calibrated so you don't disincentivize people to, to work, but focus on things that will help the households 
uh, really gap that income loss while uh, you know they're looking for new jobs and new industries. Finally tuning the policy effort, a huge, huge decision to make in the next 30 days. Tiffany, fantastic to catch up with you. My best to you and the team at PIMCO. Tiffany Wilding there, the chief economist over at PIMCO here in the United States. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.